Hi everyone, and welcome back to the Vitalist Spark Podcast. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about some of Vitalist Health Foundation's recent impact investments. Impact investments are something that a lot of foundations and philanthropies are getting into, especially here at Vitalist. We want to make sure that our investments don't just create a return on investment for our foundation, but also are creating good in the community. So we are talking to two of the executive directors of two of these recent investments. We're talking to Kerwin Brown with the UPI Loan Fund. And we're also talking to Dave Castillo with Native Community Capital Community Development Financial Institution. So we hope it's an insightful conversation. We hope it leads to some ideation at your organizations into how you can invest your funds, how you can leverage what investment opportunities you have so that it creates more good in our communities. Kerwin, Dave, Suzanne, thank you for joining us today on the Vitalist Spark podcast. But before we begin, if you can each tell us a little bit about yourselves, your background and how you arrived at your current positions. It's a good starting point for us. You can go first, Kerwin. It happens every time. (laughs) As far as how I got to my position, that could take a few hours. But my background, I was born in upstate New York in Syracuse. My family got tired of shoveling snow, so they moved us to Los Angeles. I finished school and started my career in LA in financial services. That's been my basic background. I've been in the insurance business. I was an account executive for Marshall McLennan. I was in the investment business as a investment representative. And then in the infinite wisdom, they decided to make me a banker. So I was responsible for the profit and loss of about 20 retail branches for a large commercial bank. After looking for a reason to leave Los Angeles, I decided that Phoenix was a good stop. I actually came here to accept a position to open an office for a nonprofit in Tennessee. They underwrote charitable gift annuities and that sort of thing. So I stayed within my financial services realm. They closed our office after the founder died and I found myself here in Phoenix trying to figure out where do I go from here. I ended up on a lot of nonprofit boards, served on the board of directors for the Black Chamber. At the time, it was the Greater Phoenix Black Chamber. Ultimately, ended up being the chairman of the board and Two months into that position, the then president decided that he was going on to greener pastures. So it left me as kind of the face of the chamber. The board ultimately asked me to take over the position, but I had to step down as chair. So that's how I became president and CEO of the Black Chamber. We built it to become the Black Chamber of Arizona. And after stepping down from that position, I started a consulting firm, met up with a friend of mine, Frank Crump. We were introduced to the Jewish free loan, and that's where we got the idea for starting a community loan fund. When I look back, I wonder, how did we get here? Because we started with really nothing. We had no office. We had no money. We had nothing. But we had the desire to build something for the community that we thought was very much needed. And now we have a portfolio of loans, and we are expected to have our CDFI certification, hopefully within the next month or so. That's as quick as I could get to how I got here. Thank you. And thank you for all that background. I think that helps level set for, for the audience and for us, too. 
Dave, why don't you go next? Tell us your story and how you ended up at Native Community Capital. Thanks. So my parents were both Baptist ministers and my dad had an engineering background. So he transitioned the church to my mom. He didn't finish his engineering degree. He went to seminary after his third year. And so he went to work as a draftsman and he did that until he retired. My mother ended up taking over the church, but it was a very different kind of ministry that she did. She opened up the first homeless shelter in our town, which was out in kind of Central Coast, California, and the first food pantry. And it was interesting, as I noticed, that a lot of the churches were being run as businesses. And she was really there to serve destitute populations and Native populations as well. So I remember like on Wednesdays, there'd be one language group, which were mostly uh, Nutsavi people, and they do their kind of syncretic version of Protestant Christianity. And then on Saturdays, the Yucatecs would be in. And then on Sundays, she'd do her regular service. And that was in addition to running kind of these shelters. I remember she told me a story of a general contractor who wanted to donate and support her work. And he didn't believe that there were homeless people. So she took him out into one of the fields and a little family, I believe they're Yucatec, had dug out a hole and put some cardboard up and some plastic and kind of brought this contractor to tears. And he helped build the first offsite homeless shelter there in our town. So that's kind of what I remember growing up, kind of seeing the work that they were doing. And she also worked substance abuse and she was a probation officer and similar kind of jobs before she ended up taking on the church. She finished up, you know, some of her advanced degrees. But when I got to college in the Bay Area, I took a year off between my undergraduate and my master's degree program, worked for a school reform organization. But at night, I would volunteer at the Friendship House Association of American Indians, which is a residential alcohol and substance abuse program for natives in the Bay Area. And then went back, finished my master's, and then ended up working for the urban Indian community there. As I was finishing up, one of my mentors there, there was two gentlemen, Sid Bean, who's Santee Sioux, and Marty Wakazu, who is Ogallala. And we were taking one of our trips into city council to do some something. And they asked me what I wanted to do when I finished my degree. And I told them I, I wanted to learn from people like them. I had enough book knowledge, but I really needed to kind of understand how they got the work done that they get done. And they've done a tremendous amount, both of them, as well as all the other folks that lead Native organizations out in the Bay Area, including Helen Wakazoo, who passed away, and Sally Gonzalez, and a number of others. So Sid sent me out here to Phoenix. He said, I've got a friend who needs some help getting a program up and running. And that was John Lewis and Alberta Tipiconic at the Intertribal Council of Arizona, and started working for them. And it was nine years, cut my teeth, on federal Indian policy issues, on economic development, renewable energy, housing, education, and a number of other issues. One of those had to do with access to capital. And when Governor Napolitano got into office, she had made a promise to the tribes. And she said, look, I don't see you as just some interest group. I see you as, as tribal nations. And I need to honor the government to government relationship that we have between each other as sovereigns. And she made good on that. The first meeting they took, which is a full day, she always took a full day to meet with the tribal leadership and was on water rights. The second meeting they took was on gaming issues, but the third meeting they took was on, on housing and access to capital. And that's what was the genesis of what we're doing now. I left to take a job in the banking sector and then 
worked as the economic development director for one of the tribes here. And then they called me back once they got incorporated. And that's where I've been ever since. So it's been an interesting journey. And I certainly kind of stand on the shoulders of many people, our other speaker here, you know, just doing the hard work and uh, figuring it out and continuing good work that, that others have done that, that have come before us. So that's how I got here. Thank you, Dave. Suzanne, I think you have a similar story of a legacy of service. I'll be very brief because I've been on a couple of other podcasts. So I'm president and CEO of Vitalist Health Foundation. I've been here starting on my 10th year and am a fourth generation Arizonan. So my roots do go deep, but I think it's more important talking about the history of building healthy communities that vitalist, and we're always looking for new and different ways. And this is the first time we've done something like impact investing with these two important organizations. Suzanne, you get the first question. So let's pretend we have new listeners or people who just don't have knowledge of how foundations work and where they get their funding. I think it's something that if you're not in philanthropy, you're sort of unaware of how it may work. So let's just get down to the basics of how does a foundation like Vitalist come up with capital? Where did it come from and how does it continue? Vitalist is what is called a health conversion foundation. And there are about 300 of them around the country. And ours was created in the end of 1995, 1996, with the sale of the St. Luke's Health System two hospitals and a behavioral health center in 1995. And the proceeds of the sale, which were about $75 million, went to create this spinoff nonprofit organization, which was called St. Luke's Charitable Trust. And it has changed names over the while, but in the last 28 years, we have taken that $75 million and we've given out about $130 million in grants. And we still have, depending on how the market is going, about $125 million in investments. And we very typically of foundations, the requirement is that you spend a minimum of 5% of your endowment or the proceeds, the interest earned from the investments on programmatic activities. So for the last almost 30 years, we have looked at a three-year rolling average of where the portfolio is, and we've given out about $5 million each year in grants. And they're really, we do three different ways that we get money out the door to communities. We have straight-up grants that nonprofits apply for. We also do programmatic work where some public charities just give out grants. We do more than that. We do research reports. We do programmatic work, and then we contract with nonprofit organizations and some for-profits to do the work that we want to get done. And then we also have a fiscal sponsorship program So th through our TAP-AZ. So we have a back office program that we provide support for nonprofits. And then the fourth area that is brand new to us is social impact investing. And I can talk about that later as we move through. Thank you, Suzanne. I think that's a good way to level set this conversation and really sort of bridge us into what we're here to talk about today, which is impact investing, which is instead of just making money, we want to make sure that our investments are doing good in the community. So that's why we're talking to UPI and Native Community Capital today. 
Kerwin, you're the first one up. What can you tell us about UPI and its origins, its goals, and how you're trying to level the playing field for members of our community? UPI Loan Fund was originally a subsidiary of UPI Education. That was a nonprofit that had been around for about 17 years, and it was providing life skills, actually, for kids and for teachers and for parents. What was realized is that, you know, you can give people all the life skills in the world, but if at some point they're still going to need capital to move on or have an understanding of capital. And that's why when we were introduced to the Jewish Free Loan and was introduced to an organization I had never heard of, and then I found out they, at this point, they've been around for over 70 years here in the Phoenix area. Having a background in finance and financial services, I didn't think that what they were doing was possible. But when I sat down with the executive director and found out they had a default rate of less than 2% on what they were doing and how important it, it is for what they were doing. And they even admitted that, you know, this is something that's really needed in the minority communities here in Phoenix. That's how we set ourselves out to, to build this community loan fund. If it were not for a lot of the partners, collaborative partners and people that we knew in the community, we never could have pulled this off. So it was very important and it plays such an important place for people who don't have a background, who have never been taught need for how to understand finance. Without having that opportunity, they just you know dig themselves deeper and deeper. So hopefully... That answers the initial question. It's something that was important for us to do. And that's kind of what it has driven us throughout is just the talking to people who are having problems, whether it be to buy a new appliance, to consolidate their bills, their finances, just a lot of variety of things that people need capital to succeed. And they had nowhere else to turn because there were no banks in in their area and they didn't have relationships with banks. Thank you. Dave, tell us about Native Community Capital and how the organization began and what you're currently working on, your goals. As I mentioned before, the genesis of the organization really was through that discussion with the tribal leadership. And that was in 2003. The tribal leadership were essentially saying, you know, the banks, they're very eager to help finance our gaming enterprises, our hospitality businesses, even sand and gravel and ag enterprises. But when our tribal members call for a home loan or a small business loan, they won't even pick up the phone. The other comment that was made was something to the effect that cities, towns, and municipalities on the other side of the reservation border get access to all kinds of financing, tax-exempt bond financing, tax credit financing, more typical financing that is common for businesses and other infrastructure development and exotic types of financing. And I remember the comment was something to the effect of, and all we get are government grants. And so Governor Napolitano had made the comment that if the banks aren't going to make tribal members loans and tribes, then we've got to capitalize our own fund and show them how these deals can get structured. Basically, the R&D, which I think a lot of nonprofits do on behalf of banks and others. Once private sector entities see that we can get down to a 2% loss rate, which is by industry standards, very low. 
And as long as they could see that there's some volume and money to be made, then they'll follow. But we need to lead. And I think that's appropriate. I tell banks and private sector entities all the time who want to develop an Indian practice, as they say, I said, you know, it's real simple. You either lead, follow, or get out of the way. And by lead, I mean establishing a commitment that takes the form of staffing up, designing products, committing budget line items, and going after the business. And if you can't do that, or if you won't do that, then you need to follow and let us do that work and help support that work. And if you're not going to do either, then just get out of the way. Save everyone time. Don't put up beautiful pictures on your internet or your social media on how you appreciate Native American tribes and Native people. Don't do that because you're not in our communities. You're not serving us. Just get out of the way. Just go away (laughs) because you're really not helping. And I think that speaks to the advocacy side of what we do in terms of the goals. Yes, the goal is to deploy the capital that we have for home loans and small business loans. But at the end of the day, a big part of the work we do is kind of what Governor Napolitan talked about is show them. And that means advocacy. That means relationship building. That means developing an understanding of where people and organizations are at who could be part of the solution. And that, that goes both ways, right? That work happens with tribes as well, with tribal leaders, with tribal program directors and other practitioners that do work in tribal communities and tribal members themselves. And it takes different forms because sometimes I say that social scientists, economists, and others will say euphemistically that tribal communities will describe them as severely economically and socially distressed. And that's pretty language for the reality, which is really dire and sobering when you see it up front. And those individuals who live through that social and economic stress, just because they get elected to tribal council doesn't mean they leave those issues at the door. They bring them into those council chambers and the decisions that are made. And sometimes that means that there's a lot of education and communication and resolution of longstanding issues that need to get addressed. So it's a tough job for the tribal leadership. They carry a very heavy burden. So that work happens there. But likewise, with corporate executives and others, I was on a call with some investors at the beginning of COVID. And you know, by this time, I'd had some relatives, people in our organization, had relatives and friends who'd already passed away from COVID. And on this investor call, one of the investors said, you know, I'm just so upset about this whole COVID situation because we've been trapped up here in our 2,500 square foot vacation home up here in the Hamptons with our nanny, and we just can't get back to the city. And that was what was distressing to most of the people on that investor call. They really, none of them knew anyone who had COVID. You know, they were isolated and sheltered from that. So if you can imagine, you know, what those conversations are like in terms of talking with tribal leaders who are facing daily issues of how to address severe economic and social distress in the communities, to get them to buy into approving policies and tribal codes and ordinances to allow for the work that we do to happen. And then the communication and conversations that need to happen with those types of investors who really have never even known a Native American or really understand the depths of poverty and social distress. It's a good amount of work. And I'm a storyteller. You know, I can talk tough, but I could also provide context. And that's a big part of the work that we do as well. So 
our goals at this point are to continue to grow. There's so much need there. Any cursory review of Community Reinvestment Act or community health needs assessments will show that the resources just aren't flowing to tribal communities and to Native Americans. So there's a lot of work yet to be done, obviously not just in our community, but Hispanic community, African-American community and others. But that's our goal is to continue to grow, continue to be of service and really support the tribes in their work to maintain their sovereignty and their communities, the nations, and the legacy of each of their peoples wherever they're at here in the Southwest. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Kerwin, for explaining to us how your organizations began and what you're working to do. Let's switch it back to Suzanne and let's talk about the philanthropic sector for a little bit and why it's important to look beyond returns on investment through traditional means. Just throw your money in the market and let it grow. Why it's important for public charities, private foundations, family foundations to look at how they can use their funds and their capital to create change in the communities that they work in. And sometimes even for us outside of the communities that we work in. Why is it important? And then you can tell us about the impact investments that Vitalist recently made. I think there's a legitimate criticism of foundations, whether they be from corporate, uh, family foundations, or private foundations, or public charities, that why should you sit on 95% of your revenue and only deploy 5%? And the notion historically has been It allows the foundations to be perpetual, so to keep on giving. But again, there is a legitimate conversation to be had and is happening all over the United States about what the heck are you doing with the 95% and why are you holding on to the 95% and not deploying it? So our board has had that crucial conversation, just as many boards around the country have had. And especially during COVID, we expanded the board, approved almost a 20% increase in our funding. An additional million dollars went out during COVID for health equity grants, and they were just basically general operating grants to hard-hit areas of the state. We ran the data of where the COVID cases were around the state, where we had that data, and then the unemployment filings. We created basically a heat map, and then we found community partners to just give money out to help them during COVID. We didn't say you have to spend it on this or that. We said whatever you need. And then we joined with other funders to do that as well. So there was a lot of collaborative funding going on in Arizona, which I'm proud to say, because rather than being competitive, the philanthropic community here is very collaborative. And that started some really good conversations and other foundations locally did different things. The Virginia G. Piper Charitable Trust gave out a very large amount of their endowment to try and address and did some incredible things. Many of the other foundations locally have given out additional money. And the Arizona Community Foundation also set up a community impact loan fund with low interest, so similar to what Dave and Kerwin have been doing for their communities. ACF set up one as well. 
So we are always looking to collaborate rather than to create our own. And so our board said, how else can we participate and get involved and do work that will help the economies recover during, you know, sort of post pandemic, if you will. So the board made a proposal almost a year ago that we take up to 5% out of the endowment. So an additional draw on the endowment and deploy it with low interest loans to groups that were also deploying capital. And so in addition to the UPI Loan Fund and the Native Community Capital Development Financial Institution, the CDFI, we also made an allocation to Local First Arizona's Rural Micro Loan Fund. And there's a theme here that traditional banks aren't serving areas or populations in Arizona. And Local First was finding that they're were literally an absence of local financial institutions in Greenlee, Cochise, Santa Cruz, Pinal, and Yuma counties. So our money will help to deploy micro loans in those areas, financing both for-profit small businesses and not-for-profits with $25,000 or less. Their other funding partner is Freeport MacMoran. And then We also invested money in Foresight, which is an African-American emerging CDFI that focuses where Kerwin's Group UPI does $4,000 or less loans. Foresight does larger loans in looking at development of affordable and workforce housing. And they're working with Raza Development and Prestamos, the CDFI affiliated with Chicanos por la Causa. And then we invested and in the process of finalizing up to $2 million that will be invested in ACF's, Arizona Community Foundation's Community Impact Loan Fund, which also does loans range from $125,000 to almost $4 million. And then ACF is partnering with the USDA, the Federal Rural Development Partnership, and they are looking at small infrastructure loans to small towns and cities in Arizona. So we are redeploying our funds in all of those, and we're charging 1% simple interest to deploy those funds for five years. Thank you for that overview, Suzanne. Dave, Kerwin, let's go back to you guys. I know you guys run these organizations, but why is it important for philanthropy and private investors to invest into organizations like yours instead of just taking those earnings and maximizing those earnings and just re-granting it out like Suzanne had mentioned as, as previously as, I, I as think, the traditional model. I think that something Suzanne said was very important, and that is that what Dave and I are doing, we are the boots on the ground. We are involved in the communities that we're serving. So it is important that if the foundations are looking to help the communities, for them to collaborate with those of us who are actually doing the work, who know the people, who understand the nuances involved in getting money in the right places at the right time. I think that's, that is very key. We want to make sure that we continue to be sustainable as well. I mean, you know, even though we're a nonprofit, we still run it like a business. As a business, if we don't have a way of having revenue come in, then we certainly can't continue to provide revenue where it's needed in the community. 
Dave? It's important in the sense that I think one of the things that CNN mentioned about this conversation that's being had around what's been called the hoarding of wealth. And it's also important to recognize, as Suzanne also said, that there are a number of different types of foundations. There, there are corporate foundations. We're working with one now that last year alone deployed $750 million in grant funds. And that's, you know, if you can imagine that that's what they just, they deployed as grant funds, you know, what kind of revenue are they achieving as a corporation? But, you know, and then there are everything from that to small family offices that total assets around 200 million or less. There's, so there's the full gamut of types of foundations and they all have the 5% rule that they abide by if they're designated a nonprofit foundation. But uh, there's a gentleman who's Lumbee. His name is Edgar Villanueva and he wrote a book called Decolonizing Wealth. And what he talks about in his book, I mean, it's a scathing indictment of the foundation industry, really. He posits that foundations are essentially a mechanism for the wealthy to continue to hoard their wealth. And his work involves disrupting these practices and these institutions and the movement of money and wealth in society. So I think without getting into kind of his argument, I think he makes a very cogent and reasonable explanation for why it's important to do this. But uh, I think in terms of the work that we do, Kerwin, I, and others, I sit on a number of other nonprofit boards. One of my fellow board members for another organization, and he's a venture capital guy, he said, you know, you need grant funds to do this work because no investor in their right mind is going to put money into your organization at the stage that it is now, which Really what he was saying is that there's so much work that needs to be done. Imagine being out in the desert and having to set up a shelter for yourself and survive with nothing more than kind of what you have around you. It can be done. Native people in the desert have done that before colonization, but it takes those people coming together, suffering and building the infrastructure that's needed to survive in a harsh landscape. And that's really where a lot of our nonprofits are at. There's not a lot of money to be made when you're getting started because just like living in the desert, you're not going to have a bountiful harvest right off the bat. You have to build the community and manage the resources effectively so that you can have a thriving community in a harsh desert environment. And that's the work we're doing. So when we're blessed with rain, that helps. And when we're blessed with investments from organizations, foundations, and others that see the value of what we're doing and the work that goes into it, it helps all of us. So I think you've got Villanueva's argument on the one end, and you've got the argument on the other side, which is we're all related one way or the other. And just because some of us are blessed with resources and others have had difficulties, does not mean that we should not be contributing to each other's mutual success. Now, you've both sort of set up the dynamics of lack of investment into whether it's tribal communities or the lack of investment into communities of color, the lack of access to capital. This first question is going to be for Kerwin. 
we can quickly sort of walk into a scenario. Let's say I'm a person of color down in South Phoenix and I need some working capital for my small business. What are the options that I would have? Those options would likely be not the same if I was somebody who was up in North Scottsdale and I needed to access those same resources. Can you tell me about those dynamics and what your products are doing to combat that? You know, it has been a learning experience for us as well. When we first got started, we started this really to help individuals, not thinking that the types of loans that we were prepared to start with were going to be able to help businesses at all. Because as Susan said, we started out capping our loans at $4,000. When COVID hit, we decided to hold off actually on pulling the trigger on accepting applications. We figured people didn't need more debt. So we raised some funds and actually were able to give out small grants to, to, to businesses because the funds were not reaching the small, the small businesses in the communities like it should have. According to the FDIC, there's approximately almost like 6 million U.S. households that are still considered unbanked. And unbanked meaning that not a single individual in these millions of households have a checking or savings account. What we found out was there were a lot of businesses that we granted two or $3,000 to, and it gave them the hope. If you people don't have hope, there's no way that they're going to survive and their businesses aren't going to survive. The idea of just being able to reach out to those businesses with grants, we got so many people that came up to us afterwards and said, you were really a lifesaver for me and for my business. So at this point, almost a 50-50 mix on whether we are lending to individuals, even with the small amounts, or whether we're lending to small businesses. So it's an important dynamic that people don't have financial institutions in their neighborhoods. And the amount of financial banks that are in minority communities, it's actually shrinking. There are, I believe, 70% of minority communities that completely, that have access to bank branches in their neighborhood. So you don't have a relationship with a bank. You don't have access to a bank. But on every corner, you'll find a payday loan or a title loan or a check cashing operation. And that's why we started this. And that's kind of the dynamic that you're talking about that really motivated us to, to actually continue to build this fund. Thank you, Kerwin. Some people who may not live in these underserved communities, they just may not see that. Like you said, you just need to drive down South Phoenix or Maryvale and you're going to see, like you said, a check cashing place at every other corner. It's almost like a Walgreens. Let's take it over to Dave. Dave, you've already talked about lack of capital access in tribal communities and what has been implemented to combat that. So let's dig a little deeper into what Native Community Capital is doing to serve community members through its loan products. So if you can talk a little bit about those, that'd be great. We offer on the small business lending side, small business loans from around 30000 to up to a quarter million dollars. We use the Bureau of Indian Affairs loan insurance and loan guarantee programs, which guarantees the debt up to 90%. So in the case of default, the lender is guaranteed to recover 90% once we file a claim with the Bureau. 
I think the, the thing to say, though, is that the needs for financial products are vast. I, I mean, Kerwin kind of referenced this. We, if we look at the McKinley County in New Mexico, which is, you know, it's got a large Native American population. McKinley County has the highest poverty rate, the highest proportion of the Native American population, and the largest proportion of payday lenders. In the town of Gallup, for example, and this is similar in other border towns that border reservations. There are five banks, five legitimate banks, and over 50 predatory lenders, payday lenders, title loan, chattel loan companies for mobile homes, pawn shops. I mean, someone asked, what is it going to take to get money flowing through the Navajo Nation? And my comment was, you know, it's not that there's a lack of money flowing through Navajo. There's a tremendous amount of money flowing through Navajo and other tribal communities. It's just the wrong kind of money. It's predatory. And so we offer a counterpoint to that, but you know, we're just one organization. There's the advocacy work that I talked about, but then there's the work with individuals. We had an individual come to us. She bought a little storage shed that she wanted to convert into a studio for her pottery making. When she bought it, it was going to be, I think, something like eight or $9,000. When she got it delivered and she got her first bill, it showed that the total principal due was 17000 And she called and she said, I don't know why when I bought it, it was a $9,000 unit. And now when they're saying I owe 17, so I said, well, send me the agreement that you signed. And sure enough, right on the back of the agreement, it said they were charging her 60% interest. And I said, well, this is why you're going to end up paying 17,000, not principal, principal and interest, right? At the end of the day, because they're charging you 60%. And so she said, well, I, I thought something was funny, but I was too embarrassed to ask. And that unfortunately when Kerman talks about you know financial knowledge and education, a lot of it, it isn't just the education. I mean, they, she knew she was getting a raw deal, but she also knew that the power dynamic between this off-reservation business that was selling storage sheds and her, what, there, there was a big differential. So we ended up actually spinning off two additional nonprofits. One is called the Southwest Native Assets Coalition. And all they do is small dollar debt consolidation loans to help individuals like this. And we do it too. But now that we've spun off this other organization, they're focused on that. And I think the thing I want to say about that is that, you know, really what we need is an ecosystem of organizations that are serving this tremendous need. I mean, we need to put the payday lenders out of business. That, that's for sure. But that goes through enforcement actions with the attorney general's office and, and other activities as such. But when people are desperate, when there's a question of whether or not they can pay for their medicines or for their children's school and then get the new tires on their truck so they can actually go into work, you know, they will turn to these predatory lenders. So, and there's just not enough of us to supply all that demand, but it also speaks to kind of the poor financial habits that people have just because they've never had the luxury of being able to, you know, as I think another friend of mine in her book writes about, you know, go to friends and family to raise half a million dollars for their small business, right? We just don't have that typically in our communities. So I, I think the bigger question is, yes, we offer these financial products, but the work really involves building an ecosystem of organizations that can do the financial literacy and education, the budgeting, the credit counseling, the small dollar debt consolidation work, as well as small business counseling, 
back office support like TAP-AZ does, but in this case for small businesses, rural, remote, small businesses. And then we've got incubators as well as home buyer education organizations, as well as builders, as well as different tribal communities. But we've got a long way to go. And I think beyond the specific financial products, again, what we need is to develop the partnerships, build the infrastructure, and secure the, the commitments of, well, foundations like Vital Health Foundation and others to help support that work. Thank you, Dave. What you were talking about is something that might be referred to as financial equity. And I think that's something that a lot of underserved communities just don't have. And that all ties back to the elements of the healthy community wheel and economic opportunity is one of those spokes. So Suzanne? I think both Dave and Kerwin really articulated it really well as to why the need is there. And I like to say we are trying to change the ecosystem in philanthropy and we are modeling the behavior we hope to see in others. So what these types of low interest loans, I say for investors, it's like our bond fund. We don't expect more than one to 2% in most cases for our bond fund in our portfolio. So instead of having one to 2% invested in a traditional bond fund, why don't I expect 1% interest and investing in these CDFIs and then see the multiplier effect? Because when particularly we've seen both Kerwin and David have shared some examples that really makes a huge difference. A four to $5,000 loan moving from 40% interest or 60% interest to even 12% interest is a dramatic impact in someone's well-being. And Vitalist is interested in health, but also well-being. And as part of that, it is economic prosperity, because with economic prosperity, you are able to take care of your health and meet the needs of your family, whether it's transportation or affordable housing or getting health insurance and getting access to providers. So this is very intertwined in building healthy communities. Thank you, Suzanne. But Dave and Kerwin, you guys already sort of gave us a few examples of how your products are helping your community. But if you had to pick one that just lights you up when you talk about it. There's been many, but the one that comes to mind immediately is a a lady who was an immigrant from, I forget which country in Africa. And she had set up a little side business at the time to import spices from her country and actually was selling them to different restaurants and and individuals here in the greater Phoenix area. But it was costing her more because she couldn't buy in bulk. She couldn't import in bulk. So she wanted to get a loan to, to, which, you know, great business strategy, right? She, but she had no, you know, she really didn't have a, a true banking relationship. So her daughter convinced her to to talk to me. I sat down with her and started talking about her business and found out she, she really didn't have a business, you know? And I explained to her, you need to have a separate banking account. You need to have an EIN number. You need to be registered with the state. 
all of these things that she had no idea, but she took notes. I mean, she was diligent in actually doing some of the things. We were able to still get her a loan so that she could get started. Fast forward, because I, I also introduced her to the business accelerator through Local First, and she actually came to me. I saw her later on, and she thanked me because now she had reached a point where she actually got a line of credit from a credit union to help her business. And she said, if it had not been for not only the loan that I gave her, but the tutelage that I was able to provide, that she never would have gotten. And that, that always, that thought always kind of makes me beam. That's kind of what it, what this is all about. That's great to hear. What about you, Dave? So I already mentioned one, one of those individuals and we just completed a video series. I'll send the link to you and Suzanne that showcases a Katsan tribal member who's a coffee roaster, a woman from Jemez Pueblo who's starting, who just opened up her plant-based food restaurant and then this potter. But I think the other thing to mention is, you know, when I started this work, you know, there, there was like the SBA and there was you know, some business support here in the Valley, but not much to speak of in tribal communities. And today there's like half a dozen native led small business incubators. I'll just mention them real quickly because they just do such tremendous work. There's Change Labs up in Tuba City that serves Hopis and Navajos. There's a native entrepreneur and residence program, which serves tribal members in Arizona and New Mexico, Native Women Lead which only serves Native women entrepreneurs. And then there is also a, a new group out of University of Arizona. They're not Native, but they do have a Native component to it that's led by a gentleman who's from Pascoyaki, and it's called Forge. Uh, and there, there are a few others that are developing, but just to have that resource available has been tremendous. And I really urge everyone to kind of take a look at the work that those organizations are doing. And as far as a case study example, the one I always use is a gentleman up on the Navajo Nation. He was an EMT for 13 years and the ambulance company was run by a non-Indian individual. And he had gone to him and said, look, you know, can we get some basic training for all our EMTs so that we're assured that when we're servicing households that have elders, that we could speak to them in Hopi and Navajo, even if it's a simple phrase such as, do you need your medication from inside the house? Are you comfortable? Do you need to be sitting up? And the owner just would not do it. He would not pay to, to have everyone who wasn't fluent in the language already or one or the other. And it really bothered him. So years down the road, he ended up buying the ambulance company from him. He got an angel investor. And then he realized that, you know, he needed, uh, again, uh, uh, more than just the ambulances. So he bought the, uh, the gas station that was failing with the revenue that he generated off the ambulance company so that he could fuel his vehicles. Then he built a dispatch center that had four bays to repair the ambulances that he was running. And he also offered car repair services for the local community there. And then he opened up a auto parts store next to that building. And then I think AutoZone moved into town and put him out of business. So he converted that to a laundromat because sure enough, the one laundromat in town, half of the machines were always broken and people had to wait two hours to wash their clothes. 
So he did that. And that's one of the loans that we financed. But this is kind of, you know, what I call a res town hero, right? I mean, he's bringing business solutions to address the needs in the community. He's running them in a way that are relevant and important for the community. He's able to donate to, you know, the police, the fire station crew. He's able to buy, you know, uniforms for kids for after-school programs. And it's just a, it's a great story because, you know, you know, he was a first responder. That's, he saw up close what was going on in the community. And he knew that the businesses that were there primarily owned by non-Indians, you know, weren't really committed to the community. So I think that's one of kind of the best stories that I can tell, but there's so many. So I'll check out that video series when I send it over to you. Thank you, Dave. We'll take those organizations you mentioned. We'll link them in the show notes to make sure everybody can get those. Suzanne, organizations that are looking to create more equitable, socially just investments that benefit the community. How can they do that? They can contact us at Vitalist. We're working with a number of other foundations who have expressed interest in joining together. A number of business leader groups are also looking to do this because you've got business people that say, for example, I've seen the structural lack of supply for workforce housing and that missing middle housing. And I don't know how as an organization to help tackle that. And so we broached the idea of what if you invest again, a low interest loan in, for example, the community, Arizona Community Foundation's Community Impact Fund that could then aggregate the funding and help with the development of infrastructure, including affordable and workforce housing. So if anybody's interested, we're working on that and working on building a collective, if you will, of investors that see the value of moving their bond funds into more of a working capital instrument that could yield basically the same or close to the same interest that they're doing now in their investments, but really taking it out of the investment world and putting it into and investing in our local communities. Thank you, Suzanne. All right, Kerwin, Dave, this is your shot to let the world know how to invest in your organizations, how to partner with you guys. So where should people go to find out information about UPI or Native Community Capital? We're not hard to find. Our website is upiloanfund.us and our phone number is 602-888-1370. Although most people have my cell phone and call me direct. I will say that we started out very small and are looking to grow. We never want to lose track of helping the individuals as we go into to larger business loans and doing other things. But this is what we're committed to. And this is something that is needed not only here in the Valley, but really all over the country. So we are spreading out and having conversations and collaborations with organizations in other cities as well that want to start similar loan funds. And we'll be, we are 
looking to service and help them build their loan funds as well. We've gone through the wars already, so we're looking to help others as well. So hopefully, if anyone wants to help not only our community here, but communities across the country, yeah, please reach out to us. Yeah, you can find us online as well, nativecap.org, pretty easy to find. I guess I'd echo what Kerwin's saying here. I mean, you know, we've got a strong balance sheet. We've been taking on investments. We have can get through any kind of underwriting that an investor would like to have done. But, you know, we're only taking money at nothing over 2%. And the field is competitive right now. We had one bank come to us and offered us 5%. And we just sent them packing, quite honestly. But the thing I would say is that, you know, if you're out there and you're really interested in having an impact, there are other organizations that aren't quite at the point that we're at in terms of, you know, the balance sheet that we've been able to build and the operational infrastructure and discipline that we have. And if you're wanting to make an impact, I think invest early and often in organizations that are getting started. I mean, and that means developing a relationship. So obviously, I think very highly of the Southwest Native Assets Coalition and the work they're doing, Native Women Lead. There's Change Labs. There's another association called the Indigenous Economic Wellbeing Alliance. That alliance is really kind of about building the field and helping give a hand up to organizations that are coming behind us, that are just getting started, that are at the very place that we were when we started, which was, like I said, in the desert without very many resources, and they need help too. So depending on what kind of investments you have to offer, there's a broad range of organizations that can use the support and use your, not just the financial investment, but your sincere interest and a relationship in understanding how we could achieve economic justice. So thank you to everyone who has made investments already and those that are intrigued by the opportunity. And we invite a conversation. Kerwin, Suzanne, Dave, thank you for joining us on the Vitalist Spark podcast. To all the listeners out there, we hope that what we talked about today was of interest. We hope it sparked ideas. We hope it's led to some intrigue so that you can invest yourself or walk your organization toward a social impact investing strategy. And if you're not there yet, we're here to answer any questions because we had to do it too. And Vitalist is always here to answer any questions. You can always email us at info at vitalisthealth.org, or you can just click on about on our website and you'll find all of our emails. We hope it's been insightful and we hope it leads to more socially impacting investing. Thank you for joining us today on the Vitalist Park Podcast. And thank you again to Dave, Kerwin, and Suzanne. Have a great day.